Welcome to Breaking the Carbon Bond, the how-to podcast for freeing yourself from fossil fuels. This is season one, the house of the future, in which we'll be looking at everything it takes to make a home carbon free, from planning to implementation to the rebates and tax incentives that can help you pay for it. We'll use one house as an example, converting all its systems to clean energy as we learn about the challenges of going carbon free, the solutions that are available and how to tailor them to your home. We'll learn the terms and technologies of the clean energy transition, and by the end of it, you will be swept away by unbridled enthusiasm for getting fossil fuels out of your life and saving the world. Hello, and welcome back to Breaking the Carbon Bond, the how-to podcast for getting fossil fuels out of your life, which we're all going to do. I mean, why wouldn't we? Way to sell that optimism, kiddo. I'm Ren Sillenberg, and this is Season 1, The House of the Future. In our first episode, my co-host, Rick Craig, promised to show us why three of the most exciting words in the English language are home energy audit. Did I actually promise or just sort of imply? Well, I took it as a promise. That's why Episode 2 is called The Excitement. I think I lied a bit. We might need another title. How about why you should start with a home energy audit? <sighs> That's a bit of a come down from the excitement. We could do planning your carbon-free home retrofit. Okay, so we're dropping all pretense of excitement? So it seems. Not everything can be sexy. <laughs> so I guess, um, welcome to episode two, planning your carbon-free home retrofit. So, in our first episode, you told us why we should get our homes off carbon. You told us we have to electrify everything and that all the solutions we need to do that are already tested and on the market. You told us it would make our homes healthier in addition to being good for the planet. You even told us that free government money was on the way for people who do this stuff. But you didn't tell us how to actually get started. I'm guessing that's where the home energy audit comes in? Correct. Before you rush headlong after that free government money, you need a plan. The heat pump technology that's coming at us works well for both heating and cooling homes, but it's not like the old furnaces where you could just crank up the fire when things got cold outside. The house has to be considered as a system, improved where that makes sense, and then have the carbon-free system sized to match it. Okay, can I just interrupt here? Everybody's suddenly talking about heat pumps like they're the new smartphone that's about to be in all of our lives. But it seems like there's an in-group that knows all about them, and the rest of us just pretend we understand because it seems so obvious to them. It's really very simple. You just go to a party with a lot of energy geeks, and they will all explain heat pumps to you, one after another, until you get bored and go home. Hmm, maybe you should just explain it now, in case I somehow miss that party. Sure, but I'm going to do the overview and skip the details of the refrigerant cycle. What's most important to understand about heat pumps is that they're basically what people these days would call a hack, though I think the old-fashioned term elegant solution is more accurate here. When you need to create heat for a building, there are really only a couple of practical ways to do it. You can burn stuff, wood, coal, gas, oil, or you can convert electricity to heat. Burning stuff is no good anymore because it's what got us into this climate mess. 
Making heat from electricity is efficient and clean. You run it through a resistor like in those old-style electric baseboards, and 100% of it gets turned into heat. The problem with that approach is that there just isn't that much heat energy in electricity. A dollar's worth of coal contains a lot more heat than a dollar's worth of electricity. Anyone who's ever had to pay utility bills for a house that uses those electric baseboards can tell you that. Around here, people pay as much as $300 a month to heat a small mobile home that way. Even if we could afford those kinds of bills, our grid would struggle to produce enough electricity to heat all of our buildings. So that's the dilemma. Keep making heat in a way that ruins the world, or pay a fortune for it and still not have enough. Just contemplate that bind for a minute, and you'll start to see why a solution that gets us around it is such a big deal. Okay, I'm listening. The way heat pumps solve this problem is by not creating heat at all. They just move it around, either pulling it from deep underground or from the air, then concentrating it and pumping it into your house. If you live in a hot climate, they can pump heat out of your house just by reversing the cycle. So moving heat is more efficient than creating it. Is that right? Okay, now you've set me up for the energy geek's dream. Explaining the coefficient of performance. That actually sounds exactly like the part where I get bored and go home. Stay with me. Coefficient of performance sounds like a dry technical term, and I guess it actually is a dry technical term, but it's going to show us where the magic is. First, we'll go back to the electric resistance heat in those old-style baseboards. As I said, all of that electricity gets converted to heat. One unit of electricity in, one unit of heat out, a one-to-one -one ratio. So we say that kind of heat has a coefficient of performance of one. A heat pump also uses electricity, but it does so more cleverly by using the refrigerant cycle to coax heat from a source like the air or the soil to come inside your house. It's a bit like getting your love interest to come over by offering to cook them dinner. You could ask them over to help you move furniture, which is kind of what the old baseboards do, but you get a better return when you offer dinner. Got it. The heat pump gets more dates. Almost always. With a reasonable heat source to pull from, they can get the coefficient of performance above three. That's three units of heat in your house for every unit of electricity it uses. Okay, that seems excellent. So we just switch out fossil fuel burning furnaces for heat pumps and we're set. It's not quite that simple. Air source heat pumps, which are the most common and the cheapest to install, have a hard time pulling heat from the air when it gets really cold. Not to be too obvious, but a heater that doesn't work when it gets cold seems like a bad idea. You live in Montana. And there are some other drawbacks as well. They have to be sized properly, and they'll need a backup heat source in cold climates, which is an extra expense. In some places, like cold climates where fossil fuels are cheap, they'll probably be a little more expensive to run. A lot of them don't use ducts to deliver the heat, which makes the installation easy, but can make it harder to keep all the rooms comfortable. Okay, a minute ago you were all about heat pumps, and now it seems like you're trying to talk me out of them. No, I'm still all in for heat pumps, but it's easy to overpromise with new technologies and people need to have realistic expectations. Heat pumps aren't direct substitutes for fossil fuel-powered appliances. They all have different requirements for power and space and airflow, so there's some thought required to make them work properly. 
if that free government money hits the streets and people start doing slapdash installations, the homes won't stay comfortable and the utility bills are going to be disappointed. The technology will get blamed and have to spend years recovering from the bad PR. Okay, so it's important not to screw it up. How can we avoid that? I think a home energy audit is the best protection you can have against getting a bad setup. It'll help you understand what your home needs and tell you what questions to ask the contractors. It'll show where you can find energy savings, and it'll probably identify some work you can do yourself, even if you don't have any building skills. It'll help you size your HVAC system, and if you're going to add going net zero to your goals, your generating system as well. By the end of it, you should have an idea of the cost and work that will be needed to make your home carbon-free. Okay, so tell us exactly what a home energy audit is. Can people do it themselves? Most people are going to need some help, if only because there are specialized tools involved that they won't have access to. But you can often get that help for free from your local utility. We'll cover more of the DIY question as we talk about what the audit's goals are and what it consists of. Okay, then. What are the goals? Mostly the goals are to quantify your home's energy use and to identify ways it can be reduced. Once you have that, it'll be a lot easier to plan the work you're going to do on the house. You'll know the home's heating and cooling loads, how much energy it takes to keep it comfortable, as well as how much energy it uses for everything else, lights, appliances, making hot water, etc. And you'll be able to make good choices about what to change and how to do it. Okay, so we're going to end up with hard numbers, but how do we get there? I'll break it down into three parts. Step one is going to be a visual inspection. This is where you go through the house and look for anything that might waste energy. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already harvested the low-hanging fruit, things like installing efficient light bulbs. So most of the focus here is going to be on the building envelope. That's all the walls, ceilings, and floors that have one side in contact with the outdoors or some other unconditioned space, like an attic or an unheated garage. You'll focus especially on the insulation and all the penetrations, the doors, windows, pipes, and ducts that pass through the envelope. You'll look at weather stripping and any insulation that's accessible to inspect. This is the easiest part to do yourself, and you can find plenty of instruction about what to look for on the internet. Number two is something called a heat load calculation. This is going to give us a number for how much energy it takes to keep the house warm by analyzing your home and how it interacts with your local climate. If you live in a hot place, you'll calculate cooling loads instead. If you're in the middle, you'll do both. If you know your house well, you can probably do this yourself with the help of an online calculator. I haven't found a good one that's free, but they will probably get you close enough. You can also get a reasonable estimate of heating loads by looking back at a couple of years' worth of utility bills and making some estimates about how much of that energy goes to heating and or cooling. Ideally, you do it both ways and see how well they agree. Number three is something called a depressurization test. And this is when you use a tool called a blower door test kit to suck air out of your house and find the places it leaks back in. If you do it when the temperature differential between inside and outside is high and you have an infrared camera available, all the leaks and weak spots in your insulation will glow on the camera. There's nothing in this that's hard for a motivated do-it-yourselfer, but very few people own blower door equipment and you can't rent it. So most people will need some help here. So you have to hire someone? 
Before you do that, check with your local utility to see what free services they offer. A lot of them will do a scaled-down energy audit for free. Sometimes that will even include a blower door test and some estimates about your heating and cooling loads. If that's not available, or if you still need more help, call a home energy rater, also known as a HERS rater. Around here, you can get the full service for about $500, or just the blower door test for half that. Is there any free government money for that? It looks like there's a tax credit of $150 for energy audits, which isn't bad, but it's not as generous as the direct rebates the Inflation Reduction Act provides for hardware and electrical service upgrades. How could they short home energy audits? Three of the most exciting words in the English language. Okay, I sense a new convert to the energy efficiency gospel. I think you're overlooking the irony. Yeah, that's my strategy for communicating with your generation. Just pretend not to notice the irony. It makes things go much better. Okay, well, I think I've got what I need for now on heat pumps and home energy audits. Let's get back to the house you're actually working on. You did an energy audit on it, right? Do we really have to talk about that? Why wouldn't we? Did the audit not work? It worked fine. It's just that the results were a little embarrassing. How can a home energy audit be embarrassing? Well, if you pride yourself on building energy-efficient homes and you built your own house, even if it was back when you were an amateur and didn't know what you were doing, you kind of want it to perform well in the tests. But it didn't? I'll just say that there was some good and some bad. Okay, I don't think you really have any choice here. If this house is going to be our case study for how the process works, we're going to have to know what we're dealing with. Besides, I want to know what embarrasses you. All right, then. I went through the process I just described. I'm not a real home energy rater, but I have taken a training and I own most of the equipment, so I can do a pretty thorough assessment. The first step, the visual inspection, revealed something I basically already knew, that maintenance is not my strong suit. There was missing weather stripping, cracked caulk, and a broken window track, and the insulation in the ceiling had settled at least two inches. I live here, so I knew about most of these things, but when you put the whole picture together, it actually looks pretty bad. Okay, well, not perfect, but you fix that kind of stuff all the time in other people's houses. It's true. That was all pretty easy to fix. Then I did the heat flow calculations, and they were okay. At the design temperature, which is 2 degrees Fahrenheit for our area, it should take about 20,000 BTUs an hour to keep the place warm, which isn't that bad for a 1,600-square-foot house that was built in the 90s. Wait, BTUs? British thermal units. It's just a measurement of heat. Kind of an outdated one now that everything's going electric, but it'll be easy enough to convert BTUs to kilowatt hours when we're ready for that. So I got the first number by doing what's known as a manual J calculation. You don't really need to know that term, but it might help you find a calculator when you start searching the web for one. And then to cross-check that number, I totaled up our actual energy use by going back over our power bills for the last two years. And that came out better. We were using roughly 16,000 BTUs per hour to keep the place warm at design temperature. So that's good. It's not terrible. The super-insulated walls and ceilings make up for a lot of mistakes, and there are definitely some mistakes. Like what? 
Number one, the perimeter of the slab foundation is not insulated. Here's me looking at it through an infrared camera. I'm standing in the backyard. It is a cold morning in the 20s. The heat in the house is on. And I have borrowed an infrared camera to look for the places where that heat is leaking back out of the house. And I don't see a lot for the most part. There's a cool blue showing everywhere, which is good. Almost everywhere, I should say. The perimeters of the windows showing a little bit of warm glow, but that's common for uh, insulated glass to have slightly colder edges. The only real exception is uh, the exposed portion of the uninsulated foundation that, that shows for about six to eight inches above the grade level, and uh, it is all glowing a nice warm orange, indicating plenty of heat loss coming out that way. Sounds kind of bad. Why isn't it insulated? Honestly, I just didn't know enough to do it at the time. We had heard that it was important to insulate under a slab, and we did that. But somehow, insulating around the perimeter just got past us. And when we learned later that we should have done it, it seemed like way too much work to go back and fix. I just convinced myself that it couldn't be losing that much heat because heat flows upward. But now that I've done the calculation and know how much energy has been escaping, there's probably no choice but to fix it. How much heat are you losing there? Well, heat loss from a foundation is actually the hardest one to quantify, but it could be as much as a quarter of our winter heat loss going out through the foundation. Wow, that is kind of a lot. Yeah, and I left it like that for years, even after I knew it was a mistake. So that's years of wasted energy and higher bills. Why didn't you fix it sooner? Um, I guess I have two excuses. The first one is that it really is a lot of work. We're talking about a slab-on-grade foundation with a, a frost wall going down three feet under the ground. So there's no basement or crawl space that allows it to be insulated from the inside. The work is mostly underground, which means tearing up the yard, the patio, Amy's native plant gardens, all the landscaping around the house. Doing it with minimum disturbance to all of that stuff means digging by hand instead of bringing in a backhoe. And dirt is heavy. Plus the stucco siding laps down over the edge of the slab, which is good for keeping the rain out, but bad for heat loss. It's hard to address that and still keep things weatherproof. And my second excuse is that until I did this calculation, I didn't realize how much heat was being lost there. I just convinced myself that it couldn't be that bad. Okay, so I see how that's kind of embarrassing for you. But doesn't it really show how useful the energy audit is? I mean, that's kind of the point of a case study, isn't it? I suppose so, but it's still a bit like giving people a tour of your dirty laundry. And there's more. More embarrassment? Yep. Okay, I have to say that so far, the things that embarrass you are not as interesting as the things that embarrass most people. But let's have it. The blower door test wasn't great, which means the house is kind of leaky. How leaky? These days, energy-efficient builders who are really meticulous about air sealing can get the air exchange rate down as low as 0.5 during the test. 
But not only were we not meticulous about air sealing when we built this place, we barely knew it was a thing. So this house comes in at 4.5 air changes per hour during the test, nine times higher than what you would consider really good these days. Can you fix that? You can improve it, but it'll never be as good as if it was done right in the first place. The best I've ever done in retrofitting a house was to improve it from five air changes per hour to two and a half. And that would be fine. 2.5 is probably about as low as you want to go without installing a whole house ventilation system. So that's a good goal for a retrofit. Will you be able to get it down to 2.5? I doubt it. The other house where we were able to cut the leakiness in half got a complete gutting and re-insulation, which gave us access to most of the areas that needed to be sealed. So I don't expect to do quite that well here. But even getting close would reduce the total heating load by as much as 5%. Hmm. Any more shameful confessions? Yes, the back porch. This is one I never even thought about, even though it's obvious in retrospect. The slab floor continues right under the exterior wall, making a perfect escape route for heat. The floor of the porch is actually acting as this big outdoor radiator that draws heat from the house and then broadcasts it into the air. All right, not great, but can't you look at those things as opportunities to save energy? Yes, if you're not too busy kicking yourself. And don't the mistakes make it an even better case study? Because most houses have problems like this, right? Yeah, I guess that's the good news here. Because even though this is a bit of an unconventional house, it pretty much has the same problems as most houses its age. Air sealing and addressing weak spots in the envelope are probably the most common improvements people will run into, especially if their house was built in the mid-90s or later. Houses older than that may find more need for big-ticket items, like window replacement and envelope upgrades. Great. So now that you have this data from the energy audit as a guide, tell us your plan for the house and how that relates to what other people can expect with their houses. I think I can do that now. Let's review the goals we talked about in our first episode. Number one, we want to get the house off fossil fuels. Two, we want to generate as much electricity as the house uses. Three, we want to pay attention to embodied carbon in our building materials so we don't defeat the overall purpose by causing carbon emissions that happen off-site. And there's a fourth goal that hardly needs to be stated, but we want to do all this as affordably as possible. I know that seems obvious, but it's going to make a difference in some of our decisions. For goal one, getting off fossil fuels, the answers all flow pretty easily from the premise. Everything that burns fossil fuels needs to be replaced with an alternative that doesn't. So that's the kitchen range, the boiler that supplies both the heat and the hot water, and sadly, the gas grill on the back patio. We hang our clothes out to dry, but if we had a gas dryer, we'd replace that with an electric alternative. I'll go deeper into the reasons for specific choices later, but the quick answers to those problems are going to be an electric induction range in the kitchen, an air-to-water heat pump with electric resistance backup heat to replace the boiler, and um, an electric grill, I guess. You don't sound so sure about the last one. Yeah, I'm definitely having a hard time with the grill. I think electric is going to be underpowered. You look at them, and 
they seem like toys that are made so people who live in communities that don't allow real grills can still pretend they're cooking outside. As our resident electrify guy, I think you're going to have to step up. Yeah, okay. But I reserve the right to cook on an actual fire occasionally. Nobody's perfect. Fair enough. How about goal number two? Goal number two is also pretty simple in terms of choices. Very few people are going to have a home where they can harness wind power or small-scale hydropower. But a lot of us can make photovoltaic panels work on our houses. So if you have a decent site for generating solar power and it's within reach financially, you should definitely consider it. As I said before, getting off fossil fuels is the main thing, and we don't need every home to generate its own power. But the clean new grid that's coming will work best if a lot more of us do. And even though it costs more money up front, a solar array will pay for itself over time. Do you need batteries with your solar system? For most people, the answer to that will be no. If your utility provider bills you more for power during peak periods and you set up batteries with smart controls, they can save you a bit on your bills. Otherwise, the only time you'll notice anything is during a power outage. And even then, there's only going to be enough juice to power a couple of circuits. But they can help make the overall grid work better, and there's a 30% tax credit for them. So if you've got the extra income and you think you're really going to like seeing a sleek Tesla Powerwall mounted in your garage, go for it. I'm going to skip it because even with the new credit, it would probably cost us $14,000. Okay, you're saying batteries are good for the overall system, but don't make that much difference to you personally. And you're too cheap to buy them for the common good. We all have our limits. But I will be watching what happens with the technologies and incentives. Some power companies are actually starting to pay people to install batteries, so that would cover even more of the cost. Why would they do that? Historically, power companies have not liked home solar that much because of its intermittent nature. Sometimes they get flooded with electricity when it's not really needed, but they still have to credit the homes that are producing it because they have net metering agreements with those homes. They're basically forced to buy electricity they don't really need. Or when a period of high demand comes, if it's in the evening or the weather is cloudy, the solar panels are useless. When the utilities sign a contract with a power plant, what they want is for it to produce power when their customers need it. But home solar doesn't do that. But now that batteries are coming online more, a lot of utilities are realizing that if home solar includes them and smart controls that'll let the utility draw power when they need it, the system becomes an asset to them. They can put a few thousand of those homes together and it makes a nifty little generating plant, one that can help the utility meet peak demands, but that they don't have to build themselves. Okay, so tell me about your solar system. How much will it cost to get to net zero? This is one of the big questions, how much to spend on your solar system. And it's one of the places where the energy audit really pays off because it not only answers the question, but gives us some options that might reduce that cost to an answer we like better. So for us, if we want to cancel out all the home's current energy use, we'll take the numbers I have from the audit for all the electricity and gas we've been using in the last couple of years. Then, since we'll be converting all the gas burning elements to electric, I'll convert the gas use to an equivalent amount of electricity. And that's the total that the solar system has to produce to zero out? Not yet. Most of the new electric equipment is going to be using heat pump technology. 
So any electricity going to those appliances can be divided by the heat pump's average coefficient of performance. Okay, cool. So if you're going net zero, you don't even have to wait for your utility bills before the heat pump starts saving you money. You get it up front because you don't have to buy as much solar. Exactly. So when I do all those calculations, it shows that our total annual energy use after everything is converted to electricity would be 12,000 kilowatt hours a year. Then I go to PV Watts, the handy calculator from the National Renewable Energy Lab, plug in our address and see how big a solar system we would need to produce that much energy. So you're trying to size the solar system to produce exactly that much power. That's a good question. The simple answer is yes, because the way our net metering agreement is set up, we get retail credit for the power we produce, but only as long as it's equal to or less than the amount of power we use in a year. If we overproduce, they'll still take that electricity and sell it to other people, but they won't give us anything for it. I see. If you put in too big a system, you'll be spending extra money that doesn't give you any return. Right. But there is a confounding factor here, and that's your future energy use. Electrical needs tend to increase over time, either because we buy more electronic stuff, or the people in the house multiply, or you put on an addition. So it's quite possible that you're going to wish you had a bigger solar system just a couple of years down the line. Especially because we're going to be driving electric cars soon, and a lot of the charging will happen at home. Hmm, that makes sense. So you should go bigger. It depends on your situation and your finances. But it's a good idea to at least plan for expanding. You can tell your solar installer that you would like enough capacity in the inverter that you can add more panels later without having to upgrade the whole system. And is that what you did? We did leave some capacity to expand, but because we're already charging a plug-in hybrid, I think that charging a full EV won't take that much more electricity. Got it. So what did you find when you used the calculator? For our location, it would take a 10 kilowatt PV solar system to produce enough electricity to meet all the needs. That would cost us about $25,000 to have installed. Hmm. Seems like you really need to find some savings. You said your budget was $30,000. If you spend $25,000 on solar, there won't be much left for anything else. And you said solar was less important than electrifying. This is true, but keep in mind that there is a 30% tax credit for the solar array, so we'll get almost a third of that money back. Okay, but I still think your budget is looking over-optimistic. It wouldn't be a budget for a building project if it wasn't. But the energy audit really pays for itself here because if there are efficiency improvements that can reduce the home's energy needs without being too expensive themselves, we can save some money on that solar system. So I'll pull up the energy audit and look at the specific items that are using lots of energy. These will usually jump right out at you. Then I'll investigate what it would cost to fix these and see if it's worth it. In our house, we've got the three things that I mentioned as being embarrassing. The leakiness, the uninsulated foundation, and the back porch floor. We can also consider heat loss through the windows and the ceiling insulation that has settled a bit. For each one of those, I'll evaluate how much energy might be saved by addressing the problem, how much it would cost to address the problem, 
and whether it's cheaper to just pay for more solar panels to generate that extra power. And this will still be useful to you even if you're not going to install solar because it will lower your utility bills for many years. For item number one, the air leakage, I don't even need to do the calculation. For 100 bucks worth of caulk and weather stripping plus a day's labor, I can reduce the home's total heating load by 5%. Clearly worth doing. Item number two, the uninsulated foundation, would provide more savings, as much as 25% of the total heating load. And the materials cost would only be around $1,500. But if I'm going to do the digging by hand, the labor is practically infinite. So I'll do the calculation to see if there's any way to avoid it. And when I do that to see how much solar would be needed to make up for that lost heat, it looks like a heat pump running at average efficiency would need $3,000 worth of additional solar panels to provide that electricity for a year. So the calculation is $1,500 in material and a certain amount of lower back pain versus $3,000 for more solar, which is kind of a tough call, really. Unless you're very cheap and tend to disregard your physical health. Not to mention already embarrassed by the heat loss there. So I guess I'll have to do that one. Item three is the back porch, which is losing a lot of heat by conducting it from the interior floor to the exterior. It's kind of a tough one to address because covering the porch with a bunch of insulation will make it higher than the interior floor, which is undesirable for lots of reasons. But currently the interior floor is an inch and a half higher, so I can at least cover the porch with something that creates a thermal break. Easy enough to do and not very expensive. Item four is the ceiling insulation that has settled. For people with insulation in an accessible attic, this can be low-hanging fruit that really makes sense to pluck. The problem in our house is that the insulation is in a cathedral ceiling and is a major pain in the butt to access. So I'm going to just put that one in my back pocket and maybe do it next year when I'm less pressed for time. And just a side note here for people who will be adding attic insulation, this is a place where you need to think about embodied carbon. The cellulose insulation made from recycled newspaper is your best option there. It's actually considered carbon negative. Insulation contractors usually prefer fiberglass because it's easier to work with, but ask them for cellulose. Fiberglass takes a lot of energy to produce. The last thing on the list we'll look at is heat loss through the windows. This is another one where I don't really need to do the calculation. Even the best windows still lose energy, so the maximum savings there would be about 10% of the total heating load, and it would cost at least $30,000 to buy those windows. So the current windows are going to get a chance to live out their natural lifespan. Since they were reclaimed in the first place, they probably only got a few years left anyway. And again, checking embodied carbon, it's worth noting that new windows, especially if they have aluminum or vinyl frames, represent a lot of embodied carbon. So be sure to include that into any calculations you make about window replacement. So it sounds like you have a plan. Yes. The short-term plan includes three energy efficiency improvements, better air sealing, foundation insulation, and covering the back porch with insulative flooring plus two appliance replacements, the gas range and the grill, 
And then we'll switch the HVAC system to electric by replacing the gas boiler with a heat pump and we'll install a new solar array. The energy efficiency improvements that we're going with should be enough so that the solar array can be downsized from 10 kilowatts to 8 and that'll save around $5,000. Okay, so how's your budget looking now? It's looking possible. With $20,000 going to solar and a 30% tax credit reducing the real cost of that to $14,000, we've got half our budget still to work with. The new range will be $1,400. And even though we're too early for rebates from the Inflation Reduction Act, we've become part of a pilot project for a new heat pump manufacturer. So we'll get that equipment for cost. And I couldn't find an installer who wanted to be part of the HVAC pilot project. So I'll be doing that installation myself, which is going to add a lot of work and stress, but it will save money. Um, so it actually looks like this could come in under budget. Well, sounds like it's time for you to get to work. Yep. Join us for episode three and we'll see how that goes. Breaking the Carbon Bond is written and produced by volunteers with in-kind support from Climate Smart Missoula, the little nonprofit that punches above its weight. Useful links and further information about the clean energy transition can be found at missoulaclimate.org. We are always ad-free, but if your other podcasts have so conditioned you to having your attention monetized that you just can't live without it, you can relieve that urge via the donate button on that website which again is missoulaclimate.org. The views expressed here are those of the participants alone and should be taken as opinions, not as advice or instructions. And be aware that home remodeling can be dangerous and podcasts, how-to videos, and the like are no substitute for professional guidance, good safety practices, and sound judgment. <laughs>